You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. San Jose Mercury News video game staff writer Dean Takahashi goes on the record online. The, the studios looked at the economics here and, and noticed uh, finally that the, you know video games were paying off in very big ways for companies like Electronic Arts and Activision and THQ. And uh, you know, maybe you could spend 10, uh, 15, 20 million dollars on a game and, and um, if it was based on a, on a popular you know, movie property, sometimes it would come back with a, an $80 million profit. Um, and uh, uh, if you did the same with a movie, you spend maybe $90 million making a movie, and you make $100 million at the box office. So the, the economic return just wasn't as appealing. Um, if you bring that video game in-house, then the, the, the profits um, are spread across, you know, more media, uh, or you, you, you collect more profits across more media. And thank you for downloading another episode of On the Record Online. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. Uh, What we do is we talk to journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, podcasters, bloggers, and newsmakers, uh, about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. Um, I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. I'm the founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation. We are a hosted uh, content management solution uh, for non-technical people, for marketers, for public relations professionals. Uh, we are a solution for integrating the web into all aspects of the marketing mix. Uh, you can use our application to email market. You can use it to serve video on demand. You can use it to serve audio on demand. You can use it to manage the content on web pages. You can use it to search engine optimize content. Uh, you can use it to podcast or blog or, or really All the different things that we talk about in the world of new media marketing, uh, you can do by logging in uh, on a central dashboard and and handle that without needing to be a webmaster or a programmer. And uh, the way way it works is we actually put in templates that match the look and feel of your own site and then mask out the URL uh, so that it looks as though they're on your servers. Um, Our service is invisible to the end user. Uh, so, and, and there's a number of different companies that use it, and if you go to our website, iPressroom.com, you can see some other companies and, and how they're using it. I am also personally and professionally fascinated at how technology is changing the way organizations communicate and the way people consume media and information. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Dean Takahashi. He is a staff writer at the San Jose Mercury News he covers semiconductors and video games and, and the video game industry. He writes business stories as well as game and technology reviews. Uh, he has 17 years experience as a journalist and more than 15 years experience uh, writing technology stories. Uh, he previously worked at the Wall Street Journal, a Red Herring magazine, uh, Los Angeles Times, Orange County edition, Orange County Register, and the Dallas Times Herald. And he is author of a number of books, including Opening the Xbox uh, Inside Microsoft's Plan to Unleash an Entertainment Revolution, uh, which was uh, about the making of Microsoft's game console, and it was published in 2002. 
Um, if you would like to subscribe to this podcast, you can get it at www.com ontherecordpodcast.com. If you have comments or feedback or suggestions for guests you'd like to hear interviewed on the program, uh, please send them to us. Uh, send them to me, actually, at eric at ontherecordpodcast.com. And uh, now we are going to play for you the interview with uh, Dean Takahashi. It lasts around 28 minutes, and it comes to you entirely uncut after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from my press room. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Dean Takahashi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So uh, first question I'd like to ask you, um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of people in the PR community that would like to get their clients featured in the San Jose Mercury News. So how do you like to receive pitches? Uh, pitches, um, you know, they, they can come in a variety of ways, but, uh, the, the, you know, the... Uh, uh, communications uh, means that I look at uh, the most these days is email. Uh, so um, if uh, people can put together a pitch in a, a short email, you know, half a half a screen or so, and uh, explain what they uh, what they're pitching um, and uh, why it's a good story, and uh, uh, really kind of try to talk about what the story is, um, uh, as opposed to you know, here is a great new product that I I want to promote, uh, then. Uh, that's that's something that I, I uh, welcome more. Um, phone calls are okay, but uh, you know I do get a lot of phone calls, and so sometimes when I'm on deadline, um, I can't take them. Uh, but uh, if uh, if I get a contact established through email, then I I start sending messages back. Since uh, the rise of email, I mean, is there a relationship between I guess the um the, the growth of email and the quality of the pitches you receive? Uh, you know, I, I can't really say that that's uh, true, although uh, there's certainly a, a huge jump in the quantity of pitches that I receive now. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I could spend all day going through email, uh, just like a lot of other people. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think when back when... People who sort of take the time to, to give you a pitch on a piece of paper, a typewritten paper, um, it almost seems like they, they thought a lot more about what they're saying. Um, sometimes I get uh, a whole lot of misdirected uh, uh, pitches um, by email because uh, people just aren't uh, really thinking so much when they before they hit the send button. How many pitches on average a day do you receive, and how do you decide which ones to open? Um it's very hard to say because it it's, uh, it ranges. I mean, the the the, the product launch seasons are, are very seasonal, right? And so, you know, for the video game industry, or get a couple of thousand uh, uh, pitches about uh, new games coming out in the in the fall season, and uh, and nothing comes out there in the summer. Uh, you know, it's just very very little. Uh, so so that is one fact. I I probably get dozens. Um, a lot of them seem very generic, uh, like they're going to um, a big, huge mailing list of journalists across the country, and so I can 
just look at the headlines on those to see if um, it's interesting at all. Um, a lot of them I wind up just automatically forwarding to someone else because they're misdirected. Uh, and then I look at the ones that, from people that I know. Uh, and uh, at this point, uh, you know, I'm uh, familiar with uh, a lot of different PR people. Um, uh, and so those are the ones I look at first. How do you, uh, I also, you know, I also look at uh, pitches that come just out of the blue from readers. So, How do you stay on top of news developments in the video game industry? Um, well, uh, there's some very specific ways, and then there's some uh, sort of just general things. I mean, uh, I, I try to stay in touch regularly with a group of sources that uh, know the game business and uh, know the kind of things that, that I need to know. Um, and then uh, there's uh, some uh, just sort of uh, 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 tricks like uh, looking at a, a site called GameTab.com, which is a, a news aggregator. Uh, and so if you go there, you can just pick out, you know, like a dozen or so news sources that uh, um, you can see the, the top headlines from. Uh, and uh, and so at a glance, uh, a few clicks through, uh, or, you know, uh, just paging down that page, you know, I could see about uh, 150 headlines uh, from different uh, game publications or websites. And so uh, that's an easy way for me to just very quickly stay um, up on what's happening. I also go to the, some of the, the big sites themselves like uh, GameSpot or IGN or GameSpy. Um, and uh, I also always pretty much look at uh, what's um, being written by other game writers uh, in the mainstream press. So I just search on their names to see what they're doing. Now, I've got to think uh, it's got to be kind of tough covering new products uh, when the final product is usually unavailable for review. What type of challenges does, I guess, the timing of your coverage play with respect to the fact that these release dates are always changing? Um. Uh, a lot of, I mean, there, there is a, a great mix to what I do. Maybe I should describe that. Uh, I, I, you know, I write about chips. I write about uh, Microsoft. I write about uh, video games. Uh, I have a video game blog in particular, and uh, and then I write about uh, all of these things for the paper. And um, when I'm writing for the blog, I um, will more often look purely at doing um, uh, product reviews uh, and. Uh, our take, um, uh, or divide that into previews and into actual reviews. And so the previews, um, those can be uh, just uh, demos of uh, one level in a game, uh, or you know uh, some kind of pre-release beta uh, of uh, of an online uh, game experience. Uh, so I. I do take avail myself of those, uh, you know, especially when I want to see what something looks like. Um, you know, at, at this point in my career, I have a very good idea of whether I'm going to like a game by just uh, looking at it for a couple of minutes. So whether that's a game trailer or that's a beta or an actual finished review copy of something, um, uh, I, I know whether I'm going to want to play that um, in a very short period of time. Given your experience and track record covering the industry, how has the marketing and PR machine behind uh, console games specifically changed? I mean, do you see them sort of uh, taking on the motion picture marketing model? Um, and if so, I mean, do you think that that's the way to go, or should 
marketers be looking to sort of strike their own unique campaign um, mix? Well, that's that's a very sort of uh, that's one of those questions with a big answer where um, there's so many things that uh, are unique about the video game business and, and how marketing works in it. Um, uh, you know, they, they have had historically the very big uh, trade show E3, uh, where um, uh, video game developers were in, devoting an enormous amount of their energy and, and uh, money towards uh, creating an impressive demo just for that show, and it distracted a uh, you know a couple of months out of the year uh, from those teams of uh, as they were trying to finish their games, and so. Uh, marketing became almost all important uh, to uh, positioning a game uh, when when there were a couple of thousand games coming out every year and uh, only so many games that were going to make the the hit list. Um, and you know, when you go to E3 and when you go absorb this experience, everybody's trying to compete for attention. They use all of the old sort of typical tricks that uh, any marketers would use to to try to lure in people to look at their games. And that's, you know, uh, from sex sales to, uh, you know, violence to controversy. Um, And, you know, you you always get the sense from going to that show that the video game industry has not grown up um, with the gamers, that uh, they're still trying to target um, the 18-year-old males who are driven by only a few things. Uh, and uh, uh, the the idea that you know it's interesting that if if you pitch a game as being addictive, um, you know there are, there's a certain class of hardcore gamers that will sort of relate to that and say, oh yeah, then that's something I want to try out. Uh, but there's a, a much larger group of sort of mainstream people who, who say, well, I don't have the time to deal with that. You know, I, I don't have the time to sink into something that is uh, addictive uh, as an experience. And so I'm not even going to try it. Um, if, you, if you describe a game as addictive, you know, in, in the good old days, it meant that you were doing good marketing. Uh, in, in these days, it means that you're doing bad marketing. What about the online uh, components of PS3 and Xbox 360 and maybe even, you know, MMORPGs? I mean, what opportunities do you think uh, the community component, the online component of these uh, game consoles represents for marketing and PR? I think that is an area where, you know, there are very interesting new um, frontiers. Uh, and um, Microsoft, when they launched the Halo 2 game, they uh, engaged a company called 42 Entertainment uh, to come up with an alternate reality game. And that was a... Uh, a game that, uh, you know, uh, was addictive, I guess, but uh, it was a game that was aimed at fans and stoking up the, the passion in fans uh, for the Halo universe and uh, to try to get them involved in um, spreading word about, you know, Halo 2, about this alternate reality game that was called I Love Bees uh, in a viral way. And uh, I think Google marketing is, you know, something that has grown up in uh, the last so many years. Um, and uh, the, the community involvement that that creates, uh, the fan base that it, it stokes, um, uh, is is something that uh, is 
uh, sort of the future of marketing, and it's something that has to be carefully managed. Um, one of the most interesting features of the I Love Bees um, com campaign was that uh, uh, the 42 Entertainment folks figured out how to get 50,000 payphones around the country to ring at exactly the same time. Uh, they did all the footwork to find these phones, see if they worked, etc., and then they um, uh, they um, placed calls to these at exactly the same time. And the fans that were following this camp- campaign organized themselves um, so that they had a fan at every single payphone to answer the phone and record whatever um, was said there. And and that way, the fans pieced together. Um, all of the elements in this six-hour uh, broadcast that uh, 42 Entertainment had put together. And uh, they, they reassembled it for all the other um, fans who were watching to see. And that, you know, that's getting people to do that, to voluntary, voluntarily dedicate their time uh, and invest it in the universe that surrounds your product is, um, is pretty much the way that... Uh, uh, it ought to be done these days. Why do you think it is that PR for console games is handled so differently than PR for PC games? Um, I, I think uh, that it, that it, you know, they they did appeal to very different audiences, and uh, uh, PC games historically had. Um, you know, older gamers, they had uh, more cerebral games, they had uh, people who were using the machine for a lot of other things besides gaming, um, broader audiences, more mainstream audiences. The consoles, I think um, uh, the PR folks can count uh, uh, sort of more, maybe once upon a time, they could count on the consoles as, as having a certain kind of audience um, that uh, likes certain kinds of games. And... Uh, I don't know if um, those uh, assumptions hold up still, but uh, I think that's I think that's why historically the the approach has been different. Obviously, the uh, PR campaign or uh, the PR rollout behind Xbox 360 was a difficult one. Do you think uh, uh, the Wii and PS3 are are headed for the same fate? Um. I see a lot of similarities between um, how Microsoft pushed pushed the edge on uh, uh, product quality and manufacturing, uh, and uh, how Sony is really sort of uh, running all out to get the uh, PlayStation 3 into the market. Um, there, there are things that uh, technologies that aren't quite finished that they're trying to finish. Uh, there's uh, manufacturing. Um, complexities that they're trying to deal with. Um, you know, they got a couple of thousand parts in the in the machine, and uh, securing enough uh, of these supplies. So all of that is very scary as to whether or not Sony's going to be able to um, pull all the logistics together to make their launch happen in a in the uh, and and get uh, millions of machines available at launch. Um, I don't see the same sense of uh, panic or. Um, pushing the edge uh, at Nintendo. I think Nintendo is more conservative. They, they came up with a strategy of, uh, of having a box that was cheap and easy to manufacture um, and that didn't uh, necessarily use as many bleeding-edge technologies. Uh, although, you know, Nintendo uh, may have uh, 
uh, more concerns in actually getting their controllers made, but uh, because that those do use leading edge technology. But I, I, I see Sony uh, kind of following in some of Microsoft's footsteps right now. Um, Nintendo, I, I don't think will have um, as uh, severe a problem. I don't. I don't think that means that Nintendo is going to walk away with it. Um, Nintendo has uh, a lot of. Uh, uh, issues to deal with, like whether the fans are just going to look at the games and say, "Hey, there's no high definition animation there," you know, uh, what's the big deal? This kind of looks like the old system, uh, and uh, uh, whether or not uh, people are really going to exploit that controller um, for many years to come. Uh, uh, so, what, what's going to be interesting this time around is that uh, Microsoft uh, got uh, uh, sort of the leading foothold in the market. Uh, Sony has to catch up. And Nintendo is uh, is uh, a wild card, and it's more competitive. So, the market is far more competitive this time around than it was last time when Sony got seventy percent market share. Let's talk a little bit about the games themselves. Obviously, the video game business now taking in more annually than the than the theatrical box office, and we're starting to see the studios actually try to wrestle control of games developed on their motion picture properties uh, in house with the sort of loose affiliation of developers. Do you think that's the right way to go? I mean, should they be looking to sort of build their own in-house game units, or should they be looking to partner with, uh, you know, the existing publishers? Well, I think uh, that uh, the studios looked at the economics here and, and noticed uh, finally that, uh, you know, video games were paying off in very big ways for companies like Electronic Arts and Activision and THQ. And, uh, you know, maybe you could spend 10, uh, 15 Twenty million dollars on a game, and, and um, if it was based on a on a popular you know movie property, sometimes it would come back with a an eighty million dollar profit. Um, and uh, uh, if you did the same with a movie, you spend maybe ninety million dollars making the movie, and you make a hundred million dollars at the box office. So the the economic return just wasn't as appealing. Um, if you bring that video game in house, then the 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 profits um, are spread across you know more media. Uh, or you, you collect more profits across more media. And so uh, it makes sense that they're going to try to do that. Uh, but uh, uh, you're right that you know they don't um, specialize in making video games, and so they don't necessarily have the expertise. Right? They can't make every game. Warner uh, still can't make, you know, they, they have made moves to bring the games in-house. Um, they, they bought a game development company, but um, they realize that they can't do everything. And so Electronic Arts is still making um, a lot of Harry Potter games for, for Warner. Um, and uh, I think you know, this mix of uh, the, the, the game companies will specialize in, in doing um, properties for Hollywood, and then Hollywood would do some of its own games itself. I think that's a model that's going to continue. Um, but I think the... Uh, companies like Electronic Arts are prepared for the day when when the Hollywood studios become a lot more aggressive, and so that's why Electronic Arts is also trying to diversify by coming up with uh, original properties, um, currently in the game universe that uh, it entirely owns itself. We're starting to see a number of the professional sports leagues do exclusive deals with different electronic game publishers. Um, is that a good idea? I mean, should should the leagues be looking to who's going to give them the most money for their brand, or should they be looking at the actual development skills 
of the game publisher that they do the that they do the deal with or both, and uh, what general uh, uh, revelations do you have as, as sort of a, an insider about some of the deals that we've seen happen? Is it good or bad for um, gamers? Um, I I don't necessarily think that uh, um, deals that that eliminate some competition are going to be great for gamers uh, or for the industry, um, and. Uh, it's interesting to see that uh, each of the leagues has kind of taken a, a different approach between baseball, basketball, and the NFL is the one that went exclusively with electronic arts um, for the, the football franchise. And um, uh, and yet there uh, there are ways for, for competition to still uh, persist, even with the NFL um, electronic arts exclusive. And... Uh, uh, we see that with um, you know, games from uh, like uh, Midway, uh, which did the NFL Blitz, uh, the league, um, and what what they did was make the game that uh, appealed to gamers because they said, hey, "Here's the here's the game that the NFL doesn't want you to see. You know, it's going to have um, violence in it. It's going to have you know." bad behavior, it's going to have uh, sex and drugs, uh, all the things that the NFL would never allow Electronic Arts to do in an NFL-licensed game. And uh, they marketed that way with um, you know, bad boy players like Lawrence Taylor. Um, and uh, you know, that was an example of some pretty smart marketing um, where they, they used a different approach uh, to still reach the same football fans uh, and uh, uh, come up with a uh, a way to get around the exclusive um, license problem, and uh, so uh, even even though these these exclusive deals do exist, uh, uh, you know the clever companies can find ways to to still compete in these markets. Now, Dean, in addition to being a staff writer at the San Jose Mercury News, you're also an author of several books. Um, tell us about your uh, most recent title, "Opening the Xbox." Actually, the opening of the Xbox was a title that came out in 2002, and that was uh, the first book I wrote about the, the making of Microsoft's uh, video game console and why and how they decided to uh, make a multi-billion dollar bet to go into battle with Sony and Nintendo. Um, and uh, this, uh, the newest book I, I did uh, for SpartaWorks.com, um, uh, uh, a ebook publisher, uh, is. Uh, the Xbox 360 Uncloaked, and that is about the it's the sequel to the first book, and it's uh, about Microsoft's efforts to create the Xbox 360, um, and uh, all of the sort of turmoil that they encountered in, in in trying trying to put together their their new competitor, and and some of the the thinking that went into you know, how do we outsmart those uh, uh, other companies this time, and uh, that came out in May as an ebook and also as a print-on-demand paperback. So it's uh, available at uh, SpiderWorks.com and uh, also on Amazon.com, uh, and it has made its way into some stores. And uh, you know, this uh, this book was um, uh, a really sort of on-the-run sort of uh, writing that I had to do. Um, I got the publisher on board in August of 2005. I got the, uh, a distinct no from Microsoft when uh, you know I asked them if they had time to uh, uh, grant me a bunch of interviews uh, uh, on this subject. Um, and then I went to um, I went to uh, their big uh, game show in uh, 
uh, Amsterdam, and uh, I gave a pitch to the um, to the uh, the head of the uh, uh, Xbox division there, uh, Peter Moore, and asked him if uh, he would approve it, and he said okay. And so uh, I came back uh, and got my first interviews in December, and finished the book by April, uh, and it was out in May. So it was really a kind of a whirlwind effort, and uh, uh, I think uh, doing the ebook. Um, as we did, it was the only way to get this book done in a timely way. And then it was nice that the print-on-demand paperback um, sort of was there as an option for people who, who really want to read a book on paper and not on a computer. And uh, just final question, um, any predictions? I mean, where, where are we headed? Do you see this? Uh, where are we, I guess, in the overall uh, lifeline of the video game industry? Are we just starting to pick up steam? Are we at the top of the bell curve? Are we headed on our way down? What predictions do you have for uh, 2007 in the video game industry? I did some interviews uh, in my uh, and, and um, with, with people for the book about this, uh, and one of the interesting comments came from a guy named Jordan Weisman, who works for that 42 Entertainment Company that I mentioned, and he said that games are like oxygen, um, and I'll explain that in a sec. But the, you know the the game consoles themselves, as an industry, you know run the risk of pricing their systems so high that the that their industry actually might shrink in this next generation because. Uh, you know the PlayStation 3 is coming out at 600 bucks, and Microsoft uh, came out at 100 bucks more. You know they raised the prices on the on the games to 60 bucks. You know they're they're putting this out of the reach of a lot of people, uh, just at the point when um, they're really hitting um, very large mainstream numbers. Um, and you know games have been had graduated from geek to mainstream. Um, and uh, Jordan Weissman points out that, you know, when he says games are like oxygen, it's that is games as a concept can cross over um, media barriers. And so uh, if, you, if you create a game or you create a uh, uh, piece of entertainment that is very game-like, um, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be sold uh, for 50 bucks uh, in a package uh, at a store. Um, there are all kinds of other outlets and avenues for games now, like online games, casual games, games on your cell phones, uh, games on your, your, your palms, your handhelds. And uh, even um, in weird places like on your clothes, um, a sister company of 42 Entertainment came up with a, a sort of a... Uh, an alternate reality game that uh, where they embed hidden messages in T-shirts and on shirts and, and hoodies. And uh, if you figure out what the message is, you go to a website and then uh, you watch a video that's like the sort of the first uh, video in a in a soap opera. And uh, if you go back and collect all the the shirts, you can you can watch the whole series. And that's very game-like. And so that's kind of the future of game industry, and that, and that is it, it crosses media. It has uh, no borders, really, and um, it expands in ways that you know, people never even thought of were possible. Dean Takahashi, thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.